Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. Welcome to episode 25 of our series, Discovering the Old Testament. In theory, this marks the halfway point of what was intended to be a 50-part podcast. Whether we finish at 50 or go beyond that is yet to be seen. But I want to thank, once again, those of you who are listening and supporting this podcast. Today's installment is about the Israelite king who followed David, and that was Solomon. Under his reign, Israel truly reached its zenith as a cultural and economic power. Not only did they truly have a king like other nations, Israel herself became very much like other nations, and for some, that eventually proved to be a problem. When David died, he left explicit instructions for his successor, including a list of dangerous persons whom he wanted exiled or executed to keep them from undermining the throne. Solomon carried these instructions out with ruthless efficiency. Solomon further consolidated his position by reaching out to neighboring foreign powers. He concluded a treaty with the Phoenician king Hiram in the north, and married a daughter of the pharaoh of Egypt to cement an alliance with them. David had run his kingdom along roughly similar lines to the Egyptian royal court, but Solomon took it much further, and, among other things, he added a new position that had not been part of the Israelite court before, a prime minister. This was just the beginning of a trend in which the kingdom of Israel began more and more to resemble foreign and, perhaps more importantly, foreign polytheistic kingdoms and governments. But in spite of all that, Solomon will always be remembered in Judaism for constructing the temple that bore his name. This was an ambition of his father David, but the prophet Nathan promised David that although he would not build the temple, his son would. As temples go, the Temple of Solomon was not particularly ornate or fancy. The edifice itself was sort of a rectangular box, with a tall entry at one end and two pillars on either side of the door. There was an inner court uh, for priests only and an outer court for everyone else, but there was no wall separating the two. The inner court was slightly elevated and out in the open. Everyone could watch the rituals in progress, unlike most foreign temples, where rituals were usually conducted in secret. After the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BCE, work began on reconstructing the temple about 50 years later, when the Jews returned from exile. That reconstruction went largely along the original lines, but if you look up Temple of Jerusalem, you will probably find images of a much larger and more elaborate building. This was the temple as it was reimagined and expanded by King Herod. It would have been the temple as it was in the time of Jesus. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Solomon's reign has the traditional dates of 970 to 931 BCE. In that time, he built far more than just the temple. 
There seems to be something about becoming a king back in those days that prompted a mania for building stuff. Up to this point, Jerusalem did not have a city wall, so Solomon built one. He had large chariot divisions stationed at Hatzor, Megiddo, and Gezer, and built bases to accommodate them, and also fortified those cities. Solomon's time also saw the start of a unique style of civic architecture, particularly when it came to city walls and gates. The so-called Solomonic Gate, found at entrances to Hatzor, Megiddo, and Gezer, all have a very characteristic shape. They're built as a kind of short tunnel, with projecting walls inside that jut out part way. These walls have the effect of forming stalls, or baffles, along the sides, presumably as an additional aid to defense, in case the outer doors of the gate were compromised. The work for much of this building was carried out by Phoenician artisans and craftsmen from Tyre and Sidon, along with numerous forced labor gangs all over the kingdom. Those work gangs prompted their share of resentment among the people that built up to a bursting point under Solomon's son Rehoboam. But if Solomon is celebrated for any one thing, it would be his legendary wisdom. First Kings 3 records the story of a dream in which God offered to give Solomon whatever he wanted, and this was Solomon's answer, verses 9-13. through 13. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, able to discern between good and evil. For who can govern this your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. God said to him, Because you have asked for this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches, or for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, I now do according to your word. Indeed, I give you a wise and discerning mind. No one like you has been before you, and no one like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor all your life. No other king shall compare with you. Now, if you look at royal inscriptions in the ancient Near East, you'll find quite a few kings bragging about how wise they are, but it seldom rises to the level of being the defining characteristic, the way it was with Solomon. Perhaps the closest parallel we see is that of Hammurabi of Babylon, who predates Solomon by about a thousand years. He has a lot to say about his wisdom in his famous prologue and epilogue to his law code, but given the context, that's hardly surprising. The signal incident that the Bible uses to portray Solomon's wisdom on display was the dispute between two women who each claimed to be the mother of an infant, where Solomon determines which is the true mother by offering to split the child in half and give half to each woman. If you've read Mark Twain's commentary on this story as part of his narrative in Huckleberry Finn, you'll know that the story has some internal inconsistencies, but that need not bother us here. The point of the story was that Solomon's ability to find his way to the truth of a matter was above and beyond that of ordinary people. The Old Testament also records that Solomon was the author of several thousand songs and proverbs, 
and that he had knowledge of all plants and animals. This last talent is the basis for a number of charming stories about Solomon's interactions with the animals. In one rabbinic story, it was a bird who made Solomon aware of the land of Sheba and the queen who ruled it. Solomon then sent the bird to the queen of Sheba to request her presence at his court. In later intertestamental writings, such as The Wisdom of Solomon, The Testament of Solomon, and other works, Solomon is depicted as a skilled astronomer, and later as a magician of tremendous power who could enslave demons and command them to do his bidding. The Book of Ecclesiastes, which is part of what we now call wisdom literature, implies authorship by Solomon, even though it was clearly written much, much later. God's promise to Solomon in his dream also included wealth. Apparently God's gift of wisdom included some solid business sense, for the wealth of Solomon's kingdom was almost as legendary as his wisdom. He built a fleet of commercial ships based on the shores of the Red Sea to trade with Arabia and East Africa. He was also, you might say, an arms dealer, dealing in chariots and horses between different countries, but notably Asia Minor and Egypt. His skill in acquisition apparently also applied to women. His extensive and varied treaty obligations with other nations included 700 wives and 300 concubines, consisting mostly of members of other royal families. Leaving aside the obvious domestic questions this raises, there were logistic and diplomatic pressures that came in the wake of such a huge household. Even if we assume that these numbers are inflated, which they almost certainly are, keeping such a large number of people in the manner to which they are accustomed would be expensive. It also pressured Solomon to accommodate their religious needs as well. It was this, and his growing love of luxury, that made it all start to come undone. The story of Solomon's greatness runs in 1 Kings from chapters 3 through 10, and if that's all we had, he would look like an incredibly successful and competent king. But chapter 11 represents a tipping point. Solomon's wives are blamed for turning him away from the worship of Yahweh, and building temples where these foreign wives could worship their gods, and even joining in himself as a devotee of Ashtarte a northern Canaanite goddess. He built temples for Chemosh, the gods of the generally hated Moabites, and even a shrine to Molech. This chapter, chapter 11, shows a swift demise, but also serves as an opportunity to remind the reader that Solomon's good fortune was contingent on obedience to God's laws and covenants. This was one of the major themes of what modern scholars call the Deuteronomistic history, of which the Book of Kings is a portion. The ultimate failure and destruction of Israel, Jerusalem, and Solomon's Temple originated in the failure of Israel to abide by the terms of their covenant with God. At least, that's the finding of the Deuteronomistic historians. 
Solomon's kingdom broke in two during the reign of his son Rehoboam. The ten tribes to the north rebelled and formed their own kingdom, which later was called Israel or sometimes Ephraim. Judah remained as the southern kingdom. I should also point out that much of the popular discontent that led to this severance between north and south grew out of some unwise spending priorities and the taxation that went along with them. For example, we have archaeological evidence that Solomon kept a sizable chariot force, as mentioned earlier. According to the Bible, he owned 12,000 horses with horsemen and 1,400 chariots. One of the facilities for his chariotry has been excavated at Megiddo that included 450 horse stalls, but there is not much evidence that he found himself in any military conflicts with his neighbors until fairly late in his reign. This implies that this military spending may have been as much for prestige as for anything else, since he clearly wasn't bent on conquest. It would have done very little to boost the national economy compared with, say, his investment in commercial shipping. You may recall back in episode 21 we cited the warning of Samuel about the abuses of kings that Israel would bring down upon herself if she opted for a king like other nations. Most scholars agree that the specific text of this warning was written well after the fact, and that the model was none other than Solomon himself. But there's another point of Solomon's reign that we need to take note of, and that is that the rights and privileges of the individual tribes became consolidated in the person of the king. David had been more circumspect about these rights, and was more careful to pay attention to them than his son was. Remember that David was able to unite the tribes by winning them over. The same northern tribes that would bolt from the kingdom under Rehoboam joined David's kingdom willingly, and in fact solicited David to be their king. Solomon, by contrast, redrew borders for his provinces that didn't respect tribal territories, and sometimes would split a tribe across more than one province. He also granted special privileges to the tribe of Judah. The other tribes didn't take this favoritism very well. The tribal leaders were further angered because of Solomon's apparent preference for things foreign and Canaanite over Israelite. This was all the more ironic, since the whole rationale of wanting a king in the first place was to protect Israel from encroachment by aggressive foreign powers, and yet these powers had managed to insinuate themselves into the very administration of the kingdom. Solomon's reign is also interesting from a cultural perspective. It took place during a period of relative peace in the region. The young Assyrian Empire was occupied with enemies elsewhere, and so ignored the Semitic peoples of Syro-Palestine. During Solomon's forty-year reign, he used this peace to good advantage from the standpoint of international relations and trade. But it was also a very important formative period for Israelite culture that would have considerable repercussions down through the centuries. The Jewish admiration of intellectual skill, of life wisdom, and the arts of music and poetry arguably draws much from the tradition of Solomon, who, like his father David, is something of a patron saint of Jewish letters and arts. 
The historicity of Solomon's kingship has taken on some interesting dimensions due to recent scholarship and archaeological research. Most scholars now accept that Solomon was a real person, though the question remains as to the extent of his domain. Scholarly positions range from Solomon being the king over a Jerusalem city-state to claims of a more extensive domain. Archaeologists such as William Deaver, Amnon ben Tor, and Kenneth Kitchen have marshaled an extensive body of evidence that shows the main features of the biblical tradition to be generally trustworthy. It now appears more that Solomon ruled over a mini-empire than a city-state. Also, the figures for the amounts of money that passed through his administration are not particularly outrageous when compared with numbers from other comparable kings. Deaver and his colleagues have also challenged the notion that the dimensions for the Temple of Solomon are far in excess of what would be considered plausible. A good case can be made that the dimensions are, in fact, quite reasonable. Unfortunately, we cannot directly test that question, since it would require excavations on the Temple Mount, where all excavations are forbidden for very good reasons. As we've seen in past episodes, the Bible uses history and narrative to make a point, but here the point is not quite as black and white as we might wish. The Old Testament does not have a problem with kings per se, only with kings who misbehave, who step out of line and disobey God. So long as they do what they are supposed to do, things can be pretty good. But there is always the human element, the weakness for power and what it can bring prestige, self-aggrandizement, power over entire nations, power to let someone live or execute them by a mere gesture. On the other hand, a king might also build the temple that becomes the central, defining religious edifice of an entire nation, making its presence felt even when it lay in ruins. The authors and editors of Kings and other biblical sections that bear on the reign of Solomon and other kings seem to understand when clear-cut judgments were not easily drawn from the stories they tell. Even when they sought to make a point, as often as not, it was a point for further discussion. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S-Press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament. Music